the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's show. Today, we have a very special guest, and I know you're going to enjoy his interview. It's going to be a very exciting one. We're going to hear lots of interesting things. So I hope you're all well. I hope everybody out in the world is happy and everything's going well for you. And I hope after all these restrictions have been lifted, you're back doing what you love and everything is going great and we just like to ask you and remind you please follow the show and review it if you like give us a review we'd love to hear what you think of the show and keep following keep liking we're on facebook instagram tiktok the whole lot so thank you very much for being here and thanks for very much for listening to the show so today's guest is john terps burke john terps burke is an irish guitarist singer and songwriter from tune he was one of the founding members of the saw doctors alongside leo morn and davy carton he left the band in 19 to pursue a solo career. John Turpsborg comes from the cathedral city of Tume in the county Galway. He was a founder member of the internationally owned Thought Doctors with whom he played guitar and electric mandolin, wrote and sang. Later, Turps was one of the first punk rock fans in the West, mad for the Sex Pistols and the Clash, and played with his own proto-punk tune bands. Wonderful, anarchic, ad hoc ensembles with names like Blitzkrieg, The Lads, and All Cats Are Great. In 1987, he formed the Thought Doctors with his former school friends, Leo Moore and Davy Carton. They quickly became the best known band in the west and in 1990 had the biggest ever selling single in ireland with the now classic i used to love her many other hits followed and terps played a major role in these and the first two saw doctor albums if this is rock and roll i want my old job back and all the way from tune singing lead vocals on his own songs co-writing several others and contributing his crystal clear high harmonies and melodic mandolin guitar keyboard themes to the sound around this time he also contributed backing vocals to the water boys west of ireland recorded album room to roam at the request of his friend mike after several successful years of touring with Saw Doctors, Terps quit the band to return to Tume and work on his own solo music. In the summer of 1997, Terps began writing and demoing the set of songs that were to become his first solo album, Illuminate. The songs were written in and around Tume and on location in Alicante, Spain. Illuminate was completed in late 2000 and reflects the many sides of Terps' musical personality. Full tilt rockers, funky cool groovers, acoustic ballads, all topped with his trademark sweet melodies and set in a warm contemporary atmosphere. Terps will have a new album coming out very soon, a double album. We hope to hear that in the next few months, maybe. So, welcome to the show, John Terps Burke. Okay, John Terps Burke, welcome to the show. Simon, thank you very much. It's great to speak with you. We, we were just talking before we kind of officially press record about... Uh, John being in Tume and, and sometimes traveling to Alicante, where I'm living, because you have a house in Alicante, don't you? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a townhouse. It's three bedrooms. Oh, all right. It's, it's, you know, it's not, a, it's not a villa or apartment or anything flash like that. It's, just, it's in the Spanish community. When was the last time you were in Alicante? Um, three years ago was the last time, before COVID. So you're, you're kind of itching to get back, I bet you. I like to get out there for a couple of weeks every year because it, it, it's kind of a spiritual um, hole for me, if you get my drift. Like, is it a place when you come that you tend to write music or is it bit more for getting away from it? Like, how is it in that context? I write an awful lot of music when I'm out there because I have no distractions. Um, like, we have a television in the house, which my mother will watch some evenings, but I don't watch it, so we don't really watch it. I just bring a memory stick to put into it to play music through. And, uh, okay. Um, 
uh, it's right beside the sea on, on the it's it's like 50 meters from the, from the Mediterranean in, in Tarvieka and it's kind of I've been avoiding alcohol for many years Simon so the community I'm in it's 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 a Spanish community and most of the people that live there and work there are Spanish and all different professions tradesmen you know professional people nurses and stuff and you know the way of life in Spain at 11 o'clock every night um, in the all the houses face into a private garden, a courtyard. And at 11 o'clock at night, you can hear a pin drop. And it's just, this, there's a level of res human respect there that I really get into. Yeah, it's different. You know, people say that to me because I I lived in Salo in Tarragona in Spain for a few months playing music. And I lived in Mallorca in Santa Ponza. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, ground not Groundhog Day, but Groundhog Week, because every Monday comes around and new tourists come in, you know, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, English. And, you know, they're all on the piss and having a bit of crack and having fun. But when you're there playing in the bars and you're entertaining them, you get the same questions every week. You know, they're like, oh, you're living here and you're working here and whatever. And people, they're different people, but they all have a pattern. They do the same thing every week, you know. So... It's funny because when I moved from Madrid, we moved from Madrid uh, last June to Alicante, and my sister was saying to me, "Is it?" she said, is it wild? Is it like Benidorm? And I said, no, no. Where we live is like in Alicante in the center, and it's completely different from Benidorm because here, like you said there, this is a Spanish community. I, I've met one or two Russians and, you know, a German or whatever, but there's very few English people living in my my kind of complex and there's like nearly 2000 people living in it it's like uh, apartments and all that and um it's a great community and like that in at night it's really quiet what i love about the spanish people is they really know how to celebrate life and i don't mean getting pissed they just they know how to embrace it yeah it's it's a different you know they they sometimes people say to me spanish people especially say oh irish and spanish people are very different and i say they are but they're different you are like sorry they're very the same but i always say they are the same but they're different in lots of ways um whereas like when you consider the drinking culture for example in ireland we kind of eat then drink all night and then look for the chip shop or the curry shop or the kebab whereas here it's more they they do drink a lot too but it's more civilized in the sense they're they're dining in between, they're eating in between. So it lessens the amount they drink and it's more dignified, if you know what I mean. Because, you know, I think we probably get too much stick. There isn't enough understanding and appreciation of why things are as they are or were as they were. But it's interesting you say that about getting too much stick. But to be honest, I, I don't really care because, you know, we're, we're there's too much censorship sometimes now. And, and the problem is that... Um, we have to have like we're both Irish and we can speak about our own communities and we can speak about our own country, the good and the bad, because the, you know yourself, the problems in Ireland is that it's like bad things are not spoken about enough and they're hidden and the good things and the crack is always spoken. But if you can't handle the crack and you can't deal with it and bad things come from it, other people should be allowed to speak about it without people saying, oh, you're down in the Irish. For me, it's not that. I always love Ireland and I'd never compare Ireland and Spain and I'd never say Spanish people are better. But I think in Europe in general, they probably have a, a greater degree of understanding of how to socialize responsibly sometimes, you know. Well, 
a lot of that came from their history too. You know, they, they had a conclusion as in they had a civil war and they came through a dictator and, and had to achieve democracy. Yeah. I'm not sure we ever really have done that yet. To this day, we are like, look back at 1916 and we say, okay, you know, we're, we're people of free spirits and we do what we want. And of course, you have that a little now after the pandemic. But the thing is, with with that, you also have to have some responsibility, don't you? Yeah. Um, the whole thing is is extremely complex. And I, I'll say this as a therapist. It's extremely, extremely complex because um, let's put it this way, regarding the drink, regarding alcohol. And I, I told I gave this analogy to a friend. If country, if all the countries in the world were, if there was 240 human beings in a room and each one of them represented a country, then the human being representing Ireland for the past thousands of years has been raped, plundered, pillaged, lied to, abused, deceived, you know. And that stays, there's something about that energy that was created that sticks and stays. It's, it's not there fully. I mean, we've come on leaps and bounds. Ireland is an incredible country. You know, I was saying how the Spanish really know how to celebrate life. When I go to Spain and I see the Spanish people celebrate and say on the festival days, it reminds me of the Ireland I know in my heart, which was the mid-1970s, just before an event happened in my life, which I'll get into later. But it would have been 1974, 75, 76, when I was 10, 11, 12. Um, there was a flak hole in tune. It was the last flak hole in tune. Um, but I remember people, and I remember people in the 80s and being in Connemara and with the saw doctors even, being all over Ireland and being in the company of people who, where drink didn't, they weren't affected to the extent where they needed to anesthetize, anesthetize themselves with alcohol. They didn't have, say, the emotional issues that a lot of people have. They were able to manage them and cope with them. Um, most of them, I found that with education, it takes you out of that place when people embrace education or, or any change, whether it's training or taking up a new hobby or doing something proactive. But um, I remember that spark came back for me in Ireland during the Saw Doctors and the Water Boys brought it because Mike Scott, from a rock and roll perspective, Mike Scott's kicked off the gigs again in, in, in hall, from a, an industry perspective in the country. But you see, the whole, the whole thing is so complex, um, Simon. What I'm saying is at the same time as that, two years previous, sorry, um, you had Matt Kane from the Kane family running gigs out in the Carlos Strand Hall, bringing the Flag Cowboys down there, and Chris Meehan and his redneck, redneck friends. So, yeah, and my dad sang with them for 17 years. And I played the spoons with them for a couple of gigs when I was about 10 or 11. Kane, the Kane family, Kayleigh Band. Yeah. But you see, in the last 18 months since COVID happened, something magical is happening in Ireland. As in the old, um, I won't say all the East Coast and I won't say all of Dublin, but a small part of the Dublin community and a small part of the, that East Coast community used to see people from outside as cultures. You know, we weren't, we were fucking idiots. We weren't as smart as the rest. You know, we hadn't a clue what culture was or anything like that. But the, the truth behind the matter was what's outside of, of the nucleus has always been the culture because that's always fed on what's outside it. So Ireland in its entirety 
has always been great. It just hasn't got the recognition it should have got. And we saw it politically uh, in the late 90s when they tried centralisation and bringing everything into Dublin and shutting down farms and communities. And it, the country is still affected by this. Um, but we're at a place where the country has the opportunity to regrow. Charlie Hawhey was, you know, Quentin Tarantino couldn't have written that story. <laughs> you know, you know, think about it. The, the great pillager. <laughs> I mean, one of my favourite movies is Wag the Dog. I don't know if you ever saw it. Not many people have. Robert De Niro and Dustin Hoffman. And it's, it kind of tells you what's possible on the planet. Yes, yes. And especially when you're into, into quantum science and quantum physics, you know that anything is possible. You know, here's the thing, isn't it, that now if you kind of look at COVID and the pandemic and, and everything kind of um, restarting and rebooting and all. And of course, you know, there's always going to be the conspiracy theorists that are going to call it the Great Reset. You know, whether it's that or not, but in a positive way, which I always kind of like to look at it more, yeah. that it is a little bit of a reset for especially, let's say, for the music industry and for the entertainment industry. Because when you stop for a year or two, it lets you evaluate. And, you know, people were cursing everything and saying, oh, I should be out playing gigs and I should be doing this. But now it's given people an option. Like, oh, do I still want to do that? Am, am I good at that? Do I want to do a different career? Maybe I wrote a book. Maybe I started a podcast. Maybe I became a film director. Do I still want to do that old career? So it's a reset for a lot of people. So there will be, like you said there, there will be a new type of growth from here on in, won't there? Let's finish on Ireland first. Um, no, but that's, I mean, Ireland per se. I think Ireland per se, the people, the way we got through COVID, and I'm not a one for politicians per se, right? But I do respect people that work in that domain. Yeah. Because, you know, it's all, um, it's all down to cognitive reality. The country is a business. It's, it's a machine and it has to function and it has to run. People have to be fed. If the supermarkets run out of food in three days, the, the country be in chaos. You know, but people forget about the simple things like that. You know, when there's a storm, there's a guy up the road here. He's an amazing man, Tony O'Connor. He goes off and works for the ESB for the ESB all his life at four o'clock in the morning out in snowstorms, putting up cables so that people can have power in their house. But we forgot we forgot about all these things, Simon. Yes. Now, if there is a great reset, then so be it, because we needed it badly. Because I saw Ireland, fifty percent of my own personal self was sober throughout the entire Celtic Tiger. And I saw people lose their fucking minds during the Celtic Tiber. Like, you had bank managers giving people 100% interest-free loans, or 100% loans. Young people, uh, you know, there was one guy I know who had a, who had a business. He wanted 130000 I won't say which industry, but he had a fairly successful, he was in his mid-30s, business going. And uh, all he wanted was 130000 He had a site bought. And he was going to do all the work himself and get friends to buy it. Went into the bank to get 130000 to build a house on the site. And the bank manager wouldn't let him walk out the door until he took 180000 which was 50 for a mark for himself. Wow. And he said, it was only like two months later I realized how much of an idiot I am. He said, I let myself fall into the trap. Um, but what's for me, this is my personal view as, as a, the, the, or the profession I'm involved in. The field, I should say. I'm sorry. Um, Humanity has been like a Porsche with a turbocharged engine. 
going down a motorway, but there's an end to the motorway. There's a bend, but the car has no brakes. And that's where we've, we've been heading for a long, long time, through consumerism, through capitalism. You look at, you know, just go off point here for a second. Look at Spotify, what's happening with Neil Young and all the people that are falling in line with them. Why should artists and musicians work all their lives creating amazing music? And, you know, the hardest thing about this is, and I know it myself from the album I'm doing, the best music that's ever been created on the planet has been by people who have been so fucked up it nearly destroyed them forever. You know, be it alcoholism, drug addiction, abuse, what you can't suffer seeing in, in the animal, that, the, the pig-like animal that exists in some human beings. Some people can't take that because they're sensitive souls. You know, I think we're at a place where people are awakening and people are beginning to know the difference and people realize they have choice. And w with the slowdown, and with, you know, domestic violence is up 30%. But to counterbalance that, and I'm not saying you can, but to counteract that, prosecutions have gone up 40%, which means that people are becoming empowered and taking responsibility for their own selves as well. That word there you said, empowerment, is the big thing now because, you know, some people would look at past history and revolutions and they would say, okay, you know, one time the people would have stood up, but now we've become kind, kind of acclimatized to being sheep and not taking it. But now it's a different type of revolution because people are not collectively all going out on the street because some people believe protests don't work. Some people believe they do. But the thing is now that we're being empowered, lots of women, lots of people, younger people, and, you know, not even to do with domestic violence, but musicians even, they're being empowered now to take that power back, to say to the likes of Spotify or these big conglomerates and, you know, enough with this consumerism. You, we're working for you and we're not getting any rewards or any dividends or any shares or anything. So we have to do it a different way, you know, and, and it's the same with the, the, the women being empowered and saying, this time I am going to go to the guards. This time I am going to get you prosecuted. You know, a good friend of mine um, who's an incredible musician told me many, many moons ago that no matter what level of power you go to, it corrupts. No matter what level it's at, whether it's the guy doing security on the Garda station or the chief superintendent or the minister for justice or the president, power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, so responsibility is a different thing completely. But the way most structures are set up nobody really takes responsibility for anything no well people like to pass the book a lot don't they yeah but that conscious reality is now in the minds of most people people now realize that they have the choice to say no you can't talk to me like that anymore you can't treat me like that anymore see the conscious awakening isn't inside us it's outside us as well as inside us because consciousness most people think is in the human mind it's not Consciousness is entirety. It's everything. And when you connect with that, you have the ability to say to somebody, you see, um, it comes back to how you personally programmed yourself. Most human beings are programmed. For instance, you do all your stuff today that you do on a Thursday and you come in and you do your podcasts on certain evenings and you're a dad and you look after your children. So you have your program. I have my program, which I work on and function on every day. But I would imagine that your program would be pretty much self-determined 
Would it be right in saying that? Yes. Yeah. To an extent. Well, uh, it is and it isn't because I think I think what happens is yeah, it's like for me when when it, when you look at it in that perspective, um, there's always a certain amount of our lives that we program ourselves, even if we're very independent, because we like to have a routine, we like to have structure, we we like to say, oh, I go to the gym on Tuesday, I go for a swim in the sea on Wednesday, I do my podcast on these days. You know, you you fit things around to make it work and be organized, but. At the same time, we can become too organized and too routine. And then we can tell other people, oh, I'm very independent and very spontaneous. But sometimes you have to look at that and think, oh, no, I, I can't be too spontaneous because I have responsibility of being a dad. I have responsibility for doing this. I have interviews. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard balance. Yeah. But you see, the reason your balance works is because you have a great acceptance of your own self. A lot of people live in the 90%. Some people, but a good amount of people, pay attention to the 90% in the head that never, ever happens. Yes, yes. And that's what I work with as a therapist with people is stop paying attention to this stuff. What I always say to people, what is the definition of success? Is success having a job that, you know, you earn lots of money, having nice houses, you know, being a successful singer or actor? What is success? Because... It's only successful if you do something and you feel you do it well and you're proud of it and you can survive on it, but you're very happy with it. And all of those things are hard to come together all together, if you know what I mean, because you can be a great artist, musician, performer, but very unhappy in your life, very unhappy with, you know, not a great father or mother because you put all your eggs in the work business. So for me, success is about doing the things you want to do doing them well, being happy doing them, feeling fulfilled, but also then having a happy home life and have, when you switch off, the other side of it's being happy. I had an interesting one regarding success with a friend and a friend of theirs who's very, very, this is a female colleague of mine and a friend of theirs who's, she's a man who's extremely, extremely wealthy. She was going to a certain um, seminar and he was intrigued by it and he wanted to come along and he had gotten a ticket, but he wanted to go into the specific um, lecture that she was going into but he wasn't a level nine level I think, I think it was level nine he had to be from an education perspective so he couldn't get in there because it wouldn't have made it would have been double dutch to him unless he had specific but he couldn't get over the fact he thought because he had all this money he could he could buy his way into it but it didn't happen so that's the that's the parable of success you know so yeah well that that's it isn't it because Unfortunately, money buys you ladders to success sometimes. We see that in the arts sometimes and who you know and cronyism, you know. I agree with you 100%, but I'm just saying my own personal self would question all of that, that reality, their reality. Because, you know, if you're not really that good and you have all the money in the world and you pull all the strokes that you can to get to the big stage, if you're shit and you go on the stage, you're still going to be shit. And the people are going to go, he's shit. You're still going to be shit. You know, excuse the expletives. <laughs> no, no, you're right. And I think nowadays, what I feel is how, let's say, for example, if we just take the music business, that you can be the best, you know, at what you do. And you can be an amazing musician and singer and songwriter. But unfortunately now, you know, when you hear of record labels needing 150 grand to, to kickstart a, a musician's career or an artist's career, 
you kind of think, wow, imagine if all those great independent artists had that money. The, the, the place they would need it really is in the promotion because nowadays it's all about promotion and marketing and that swallows most of the money, doesn't it? You've just answered your own question there. Yes. It costs a fortune first and foremost. I'm, I'm not backing up the record companies here, Anthem, but I had dealings with record companies and I've never had any problems with any record companies. You know, Warner Brothers, Solid Records, Grapevine. I never had any issues with them because I was straight down the line with them and I always knew where I stood. Um, a lot of people go into deals and engage with record companies who are incredibly naive and they don't take professional advice. So, um, say, let's say if you wanted to kickstart, say you came to me and you had a brilliant album. You had an amazing album made, right? And say I was in EMI and you, you gave me a ring and said, Turks, I've made an album, I think it's really good. And you come to me and you say, um, I think this can work. And I say to you, actually, we think it can work too. Uh, this is what we're going to do, Simon, and this is what you're going to have to do for the next two and a half years to promote it. But it's going to cost, just before we even go on the road, it's going to cost 150 grand to get your name and your face out there and in the right place. So that's where a lot of the bulk of that money goes. And it costs a fortune. Genuinely, it costs a small fortune. Um, is there an alternative... To, I've been thinking about this question too, because you know I feel with you on this one because in the 1980s, 1970s, but I would have known in the 80s when I lived in London, A and R men were ten a penny. So if you had a band or I had a band, we were playing in a pub, we could be playing in Galway City. Say we might get a gig in the Cellar Bar next Saturday night with three other bands. There's an A and R man there from London Records or something, and they see you, and they say, "Let's talk," and all of a sudden you end up getting signed. Yes. The Pope's got signed in West Cork because there was an a, a, a guy from a record company down there and he saw Spider Tracy banging the beer tray off his head and then playing the whistle and McGowan falling around the place but singing brilliantly. <laughs> and he just said, we can market that, we can sell that. But, but that's it. I mean, that's how it's changed. And, you know, nowadays it's all about numbers and social media and everything. But, like, I, I remember I used to I used to do some work with Sony Music in Spain here. And I was doing English classes and stuff with them. And I remember I'd be in their offices and they'd have all these young, new urban artists, Spanish artists coming in. And they'd be talking about Rosalia and all these Latin singers. And they'd say the reality of it is, you know, you can be an amazing singer and you could come in with your keyboard or your guitar and do it. But the main question is, what are your numbers? What are your what's your YouTube numbers? What's your TikTok? What's your Instagram? Because for them, it's the ladder to get you into a path to success. But without those numbers, it's really difficult for them. They have to pump way more money in. I remember there was a band that Chum. No, I forget the name of the band. I don't think it was Fantasy because I know it was a band that Pete Creek went on to, to play in. But it could have been Fantasy. But there was a band in Chum, which was Jerry Cronin, Pete Creighton, Derek Holian, uh, Lord Marcy and, and John Brogan. And those four guys, when they played together, would have wiped the floor of any band in Ireland as musicians. They used to do a residency down the cellar bar on Wednesday nights during the summer. And I was like 14 or 15. The cellar in tune. Yeah, yeah. So we get served down the cellar <laughs> because when you were underage. So so you go down, you have a couple of pints. But these guys, these four guys used to play every every Wednesday night. And they were fucking amazing. Like, And I know, my, I know good musicians when I see them. But these guys would have wiped the floor. Now, at the same time, you could have had, um, I don't know, 
I don't know, the runny footballs or something like that. I haven't a clue. But you could have three guys that are absolutely useless, but they do something that the public reacts to. Now, what you're saying about in modern, from the modern day perspective, what you have in record companies, have you have people looking at YouTube numbers, tweet num or Twitter numbers, Facebook numbers, um, TikTok numbers, Instagram numbers, and they're saying, what are your numbers? What are your numbers? Are the public reacting to this? It's all down to, if you came to me, Simon, with a million quid and said, I want you to do a single for my son and I want you to make him famous. I could say, Simon, I could make a brilliant single for you. I'll write the song. If you get somebody else to write it, it's better, even better still. We'll record it, we'll produce it, we'll package it well. We'll get him on the Late Late Show. We'll, you know, we'll do advanced sales here. We'll get him in the charts. But the bottom line is, and I remember having this conversation a long, long time ago with Phil Tennant, who produced The Saw Doctors, and Ollie Jennings and Dennis Desmond. If just public, if the, if the people, if the public do not like the artist, end the story. Forget about it. It's like if they don't go for it, if they don't buy into it, it's like selling sand syrup. Yeah, and it's kind of like, it's like having a donkey or a horse and dangling five or ten carrots. Whatever one he goes for is the one he wants. And it could be hit and miss, but he's choosing. <laughs> but I tell you what, man, it, it, it's fucking cruel. So it is. it's cruel to have to observe through a lifetime because I have seen the finest of musicians. I'm talking the finest of musicians, guys with incredible minds, incredible hearts, incredible souls and, and, and women who never, ever got the opportunity or never got the window of opportunity or were never in the right place at the right time. It's like um, <clears throat> with the Saw Doctors, I used to love her. Um, the chorus, I used to love her, wasn't the catchy part that people went for. Uh, it could hypnotically have been because the Rolling Stones had, well, I used to love her, but it's all over now. So, you know, there was, was it plagiarism? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. But I used to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The catchy part about the Saw Doctors, I used to love her, was, was that Leo, Corrick Stevens, Pierce and Davey, had the balls to write the lyrics for the verses that they did. About they said what everybody was thinking. Do you get what I'm saying? Everybody was at mass when they were teenagers yes. looking at you know, when you were sixteen, looking at some girl from something or some guy going, Well, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Everybody we're all human beings. Well it was a because at some at some point some people forget that they're human. And they put on, they go into the mirror every day or every night before they go to the town and they put on this wonderful, amazing face or they groom their hair and they get their clothes or their suit just perfectly and they walk up town and it's a fucking Hollywood production, man. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not, and they hide the animal, the real animal, and then maybe through drink or drugs, the animal comes out, but maybe in the wrong way. But it's like, it's like you said, we're all human and we have desires and emotions and people kind of keep those things hidden. You know, it's like you, you, you couldn't be in mass and say, geez, check out her ass, you know. <laughs> but I mean, that, that was it. It was like people just loved it, it wasn't our cheek or it wasn't our we weren't arrogant or anything like that, because if you asked all the promoters and all the venue owners going right back through the years. Now, I was only with the Saw Doctors from 87 to 93. The lads played for many, many years. But I guarantee you, if you ask, ask any of the promoters or any of the, <clears throat> the hotels or people to put them up or guest houses, people say, oh, they were sound bugs, you lad. And we were. Sometimes we partied. Sometimes we had a couple of, especially me, you might have a few drinks too many. But you didn't make a complete, you know, ask yourself. You know, me, I was, my party trick used to be falling behind televisions and falling asleep. <laughs> he said, I'm on my way to throw it out the window, but I'm asleep behind it now.
So listen, let's let's go back. Let's go back a little bit, you know, um, because obviously there you were talking about your early life and tune and everything. So that one was quite interesting because I had that up here actually on one of my points. So your your musical experience is obviously playing spoons with your father Brendan Burke in the with the Kane family Kaylee band. So what age were you at that stage? Were you like seven or eight or older? I remember. No, I would have been when I played the spoons. I would have been ten and eleven. Um, and there was Matt Kane, Dolores and Matt and Sean's and Pat and, and Noel's father and Christina. <clears throat> there was Matt Kane, Matt's brother Tom Kane. Tom played the box, Matt played the drums, and there was Rich and Sarah on the fiddle and the box. The box. Dolores was about 15 or 16, 14 at the time. Dolores played the flute. Sean played the whistle, and young Matt used to do some singing. And now there was only four or five gigs I did with them, but they let me play the spoons. And I remember they used to get paid two pounds for the gig. Okay. For all of them, two pounds, and that was for pet, and that was for petrol as well. So that would have been 1975, 76. But they did it, 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 it was never about the money. Wow, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like the album I'm making now, Simon. I'm not spoofing here now or anything like that. But when you do something for, with passion, for the love of it, there's, you know, you feel so good in your soul and inside, as opposed to doing it just for money. Because um, 12 years ago, I'll just go back on this. 12 years ago, I had a massive heart attack. Really? In January, 12 years ago. Professor Kieran Daly in, in UCHG told me it was the second worst massive heart attack they'd ever seen for my age, 45. And uh, I remember waking up in ICU with machines all over me and everything. And my counsellor, who had counselled me for eight and a half years over an 11-year period, was holding my hand. And I opened my eyes and I smiled. And I remember saying to him, Jimmy, I have a studio, I have a house. My mother and myself and my father have the place that we invested in in Spain a long time ago. And I, I have to conclude that story. But I said, and Jimmy, what good is all this shit to me? You know, lying in the, in the bed. And he just said to me, John, you haven't changed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what good is it? What if good you is don't it? do something with your life. I mean, 12 months later, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a, a, tu- a, a what you call, what's the name of it? An aggressive tumour. It was the size of a golf ball. Paddy O'Malley, the surgeon in, in, Gal- in the Galway Clinic, an incredible man. I sat in front of him and he said, I have bad news for you. I went in for an, a routine operation and um, he discovered the cancer. So I came out and he said, I have bad news for you. He said, you have aggressive cancer. And I said, is it terminal? And he said, yeah. And I said, how long? And he said, three or four months. But he said, if we go in immediately and remove it, he said, the chances are, he said, we'll get it all. He's a urologist, an incredible man. His father and his grandfather, and I'm not sure, maybe his great-grandfather also were surgeons in Galway. Um, but Paddy just said to me, he said, could you be here? This was on a Tuesday. He said, could you, can you be here at 6 o'clock on Thursday morning? This is two days later. And he went in and operated on it and got it out and got all the cancer. and you know. So when you go through stuff like that, Simon, and even before that, and I don't know if you saw the Saw Doctors documentary yeah. and you heard me talking on it, but I hadn't watched that documentary since it was released. Um, so I'm, genuinely, I hadn't watched it straight through since it was released, which was 30 years. Yeah, I remember watching it years ago. It was really entertain- entertaining. And I, I remember saying to my husband here one evening, you know, and I said, Mike, you know the way I'm kind of, I'm into spirituality and just humanism and being real and talking about, I don't, I, I can't do banter. I, I don't get it. Right. <laughs> yeah, when you've, been, when you've been through two health scenarios like that, it kind of gives you, 
it endorses even further still um, the importance of of this journey on planet Earth. And, you know, we're on a human journey. We're soul beings. In moments like that of, you know, things being bad and negative kind of media and negative news, you know, we have a great perseverance because we've been through it so many times in the past with, you know, with with oppression and famine and all of these things. So, you know, that spirit and that um, kind of being human and experiencing those things through generations of families comes back to help us all, doesn't it? You could get 50 na- different nationalities in a room and they might all have been through, say, some similar um, challenging, difficult experience like losing a loved one or something, you know, a couple of months before that or whatever. But you could have 50 people in a room and you get someone, you get a genuine Irish artist to go into that room and, you know, and a, what I mean by a genuine Irish artist is, is somebody who, when they're singing the song, believes what they're singing. It's not just words falling out of their mouth. It's coming from their heart. It's coming from their soul. And, and you know, John, the great Count John McCormack back in the 1920s in New York, the Great Depression, 2,000 people in a room pissed off. And he'd walk into it and start singing. And after five minutes, they're all smiling and drinking and hugging yes. each other and loving each other. So... I think the Irish have always been bridge builders from a humanistic perspective. Um, and Irish nurses are incredible. I mean, all over the world, Irish doctors and nurses all over the world are, are revered for their levels of kindness, but their competence as well and their ability to handle reality. And it goes back to what you, know, what you said there a moment ago, what we've been through being oppressed and, you know, and famines and being lied to and plundered and stuff like that. But there's a resilience within the Irish spirit, which is incredible. You know, actually, I'm going to say one thing now that was in my head from earlier on. You know, I was looking at a video and, and I'd seen it years ago, but I was looking at it again of when you were in, in I think it was, I'm not sure it was the Rustic Vaults with the Saw Doctors and you were singing, you were singing the Suline. You know that video? Yeah, it's from Singapore for Song, the documentary. Yes, from that. But. Was that in the Rustics, no? That was in the Rustic Falls, and my mum and dad were dancing in it, yeah. Yes, exactly. But that video, you know, that there epitomizes what you just said there about someone being in a room, expressing themselves in a very powerful way, excuse the pun. But when I was listening back to that again, I was thinking, that's really strong, you know, that 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 song, you know, just that song, because... There are certain songs in Irish folklore and Irish culture that when you hear them, they send this kind of chill and a message through you because it's kind of like, um, wow, that's about something I know or that's about, you know, there's lots of songs about things we know, but there's certain songs like Raglan Road and these kind of things that, that you go, they're, they're talking about a part of our land or something that happened in time. But when I was listening to that again today, I was listening to it and I was like, that's very powerful, that song. And the way John sings it there, you know, it really, and, and I mean, and the message, you know, with your parents dancing and everybody so happy around, it's like that moment could never end, you know? Yeah. Uh, and to give it a mirror, a mirror image as well. Um, I, don't play that song and I haven't sang it since I left the Saw Doctors um, because it was part, it was a song that we brought into the Saw Doctors repertoire because my dad put the air to it and a man from Tune wrote it. Um, but 
And Manson Doom actually wrote a letter home, and my dad made a song out of the letter, with and he put the ear. The ear is an old, the ear to the ceiling is an old Irish ear. I don't know if you know this, but you're familiar with the people used to write songs. It sounds, yeah, because I that you know the familiarity yeah. of it. There's a, there's a song about the Clada that he has in Galway City that has the yes. same ear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of it's like. You know, it's like, for example, the lakes of Pontchartrain and these kind of songs. You'll the the air is in other songs in other countries. There, there's there's melodies and airs that kind of travel around the world, and people put different words to them. Yeah, um, that song, like you said, the power of that song in in, in the rustics. I don't think it would have been a good if I was on my own there. That wouldn't have been anything like it was being with the lads I was with. Because you had Tony Lambert and you had Pierce and John Donnelly and Davy and Leo. But and that was the magic of the Sawdusters. The chemistry, the chemistry of us is when when the original, when we were there together, for me, that's where the true spirituality, the chemistry of the band was. Because that's where the spark happened. I uh, can I, I want to go I want to I don't want to go back too much, but I want to talk about, you know, your musical education, so to speak, because you know. So you were saying there earlier when you played Spoons, but you know, you you're when you were with the Saw Doctors, you were known for playing the guitar and the mandolin and so on. So at what age did you pick up like a stringed instrument? When did you start playing? I first started playing the spoons and playing the playing the tin whistles at school and stuff like that and playing them at home. And I really enjoyed the whistles, but I wasn't much good in them. I was, you know, I could play the do re mi re mi so so mi re do and all those tunes. But um it kind of wasn't my thing. So I decided I'd give the accordion a go. So my dad brought me down for these lessons to Sean Gannon, or Sean Gavin, who was Frankie Gavin from the Dannons' brother, and he was a Garda. So there was about 40 people learning at the same time. So I used to get really confused, and my brain would start racing towards, by the time we'd be 10 minutes into the, into the lecture or whatever it was, the instruction, I, my brain would be at the end of it. I'd be leaving. I'd be going out the door. So, yeah, yeah. Done, so, anyway, done, I'm done. about three or four weeks and I said, no, I, I can't do the accordion thing. So I said to my dad, because I'd love the Beatles, but my mom had brought me up listening to classical music and Louis Armstrong. My mother has like, I still have the collection. My mother used to have a collection of, do you remember the track Wolverton Mountain? They stay, don't go. Not yeah. exactly, but, I, but the anyway, name I heard it. So yeah. I have all these original singles from the from the fifties and sixties, and um and I used to listen to them on the old phono player, and um so I was kind of going, I'd love to play guitar. So my dad wanted to go arranging the guitar lesson for me out in Dunmore, so I went out for this one lesson in Dunmore, and it didn't work at all, um because there was thirty or forty people in the room all learning how to play D. And I'd kind of known how to play three oh, chords. And I'm kind of going, can we play the next chord? And no, let's play the D. And I kind of go, no, no. So my brain was racing again. So I spent most of my life with this racing brain. <laughs> I know it. I know so, it well. <laughs> so I'm sitting down anyway, and I'm going, there has to be a way out of this. So my mother goes, Mary Short plays guitar. And she used to play for us every Christmas as a kid watching her. And it never dawned on me to ask my cousin. So... My cousin, do you know Mike Stewart? I do. I do know Mike. I, I used to teach Mike's young fella yeah, yeah, for a yeah. while. Um, yeah. But um, Mike's sister, Mary, his elder sister, Mary, um, used to do, she was a brilliant singer and she was like um, Maureen O'Hara when she'd sing. She had a lovely voice. She had the real, you know, the Irish Colleen voice that you'd expect to hear. 
Oh, that, yeah, that, yeah, that lilt. lilt. But she used to pick the most fantastic songs, like the Cora Kildare and stuff, um, uh, and Mellow the Moonlight, you know. And so my mum said, good. I knew she played these songs. So my mum said, I'll ask Mary. So she asked Mary Short. So I used to either get a, I think I used to get a lift up or cycle up on some evening during the week. And for, oh, for maybe, maybe eight or 12 weeks, maybe three months, Mary taught me the basic chords, how to sing a ballad to a chord. So all that structure of, I suppose, that stood to me through life of being able to appreciate a really good song. Um, uh, like the way Nothing Else Matters has been appreciated by symphonies now all over the world. Metallica's song, you know, incredible song. But to appreciate really good songs and really good Irish ballads are the same as Nothing Else Matters to me because I listen to everything, Simon. I listen, like I listen to jazz, I listen to classical, I listen to African beats, I listen to South American. So As we should. We all should do that. That's the thing. It's the peer pressure thing, isn't it? And and the, the, the hip tune gang, like who's the hippest and who, 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 who does the coolest or knows the coolest thing? So there was always kind of divisions in society. But when I was growing up, it was like there was status quo and Tin Lizzy. And I love both. And if I went to you club and I said, I love this and I love this, people were saying, you can't like that if you like this. You can't like that if you like this. And it's the same with the Beatles and the Stones. But I loved the Beatles and the Stones. Um, it's a bit like tune. It's, you know, it's a divided town in many ways, and it always will be, as long as there's Dynamo Blues to tune Celtic. I'm kind of going, why did this make one good team? You know, yeah, yeah, make yeah. One good team and, and, and win something that means something really big to everyone. It's the politics of cool a lot of time because it's kind of like the blur and oasis thing, you know. There's one band is maybe more working class and the other band is more upmarket. And I remember, well, my brother was a big mod. He was a mod fan and he loved, you know, the jam and the style council and the who and all of those bands. And there was a certain at sometimes there was a certain bit of snobbery because they, the, 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 the mod didn't like the rockers and the rockers didn't like the mods. You know yourself. The, co- the, the coaches and the, the greasers, wasn't it? That's what they were called. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I mean, that's the thing about music is that you see sometimes there's that snobbery where people kind of say, oh, well, this band is cool. And to be honest, right, I have to say that I find sometimes, even nowadays in Irish music, when I look at the Irish music scene, sometimes I find there's a bit of snobbery goes on because there are bands that are, you know, quote unquote cool are accepted and there are other bands who are just as good but they're maybe not as cool or, or they're not as hip so sometimes we have that going on in the music industry especially from let's say critics and magazines and magazines like hot press they'll give credence to certain bands because they're cool but then there's other bands that won't get a write-up so it's it's a tough world sometimes that way by snobbery do you mean like elitism where they're getting where they're getting favoritism exactly Yes, yes. That's probably a better word, elitism. Isn't that always going to take place, though? You know, isn't it really and truly? I mean, it, it, always, always. It makes me nauseous, to be honest with you. Like the minute you said Thin Lizzy and status quo, I, I understood exactly what you meant because I remember that. The thing is, there was like, you can like one band. Like I was a big, you know, I was a big Thin Lizzy fan and I big Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And I remember I was listening to. Metallica and, and Metallica people would say to me, yeah, yeah, but you can't like Guns N' Roses because, you know, they're different to Metallica. And I was like, 
why? I mean, it's just, it's a different type. It's, it's still hard rock, but it's just not the exact same. But you can like whoever you want. And this is the point that sometimes people get trapped in this elitist way of thinking where, oh, I, I can like this band, but I can't like the other. You can be like, yeah, I agree with you 100%. You can be like whatever, you can like whatever you want. Um, but there has to be a fine line. There has to be some, something or someone that call, makes a call as to say, listen, that's crap. Get a proper job. I mean, there's yes. Dave Fanning is yes. doing sessions yes. at the moment on RT2 and Other Voices is on as well. Um, my husband laughs at me because I taped the Fanning thing just to put on. And, and I put The one in Whelan's? Yeah, Whelan's. So what I do is I fast forward to, I'll watch 60 seconds of fast forward just to see if the next band can be any fucking worse than the one before it was. And you, you said it because I do watch that show sometimes, but I also watch other voices and I watch things. And the thing is, I think sometimes with other voices, there's a kind of level of elitism there, right? And um, But with the Wheeling, Whelan's one, and I see, you know, like on the podcast here, we, we, we haven't done it this month, but we were doing it for a few months where we had the Artist of the Week. And I would be looking through, I'm listening through all the Irish playlists, you know, and I'm like looking for artists. So I go, oh, that's great. I like that. That's good, you know. But the truth is that sometimes there's a lot of the same stuff now. And even though they're on these big playlists and they're getting on these shows, I'm kind of going, well, I like this kind of music and I like rap. I like hip hop. I like all kind of music. But to me, I don't know, the level is something weird's going on. It's not that good. I'm listening to everything you're saying and it's, and it's, it's, it's ringing bells here because um, there's guys at the moment in bands, right, who are playing three notes on a guitar. Right? So they're playing the Now they're 19, 20 years of age and they're bent over, right? And they're given, they think they're giving it socks, okay? Think they're giving it socks. They're bent over and they're playing three notes and they have a couple of different effect pedals on. So it sounds wow, 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 But I don't know if you've ever seen it. Bill, Bill Bailey did a great piss take on that. Yeah, on the U2 one. Yeah, on the U2 one. Yeah, happy birthday to you. Yeah, and even you know the edge, the edge admitted himself in that. Um, what's it called? They, they might be giants, or that, no? The, the documentary the edge did with Jimmy Page White, yeah. and and Jack White, where he he talks about. He said, you know, without my effects, it's completely different. But Bill Bailey captured it perfectly when he did that sketch. It's incredible, like what you know. But I I, I watch this anyway, and I tape it, and I'm kind of going just just to see how bad things are getting. And that kind of enthused me and, and encouraged me even more to make an album because I started off making demos. But before I get into that, to finish on my musical journey. Yes. Tell me about so when you... Mary Stewart, my cousin, taught me the guitar. And then some years later, um, I, got a, I, I joined... I'll go through my development as a musician first. I joined um, All Cats Are Grey because Jimmy Mullins left. And then we moved to London. Um, that didn't work out. For other reasons. Um, um, and I ended up staying living in London for four years. And when I was in London, I got really into reggae. Um, Mousy had gotten into reggae, but Mousy left, I think, came home after about six months. And then he formed too much of the white man. But I had stayed in London and I was I, I was really into reggae music and the old roots music. And I was into the, uh, the, the dub bass, which was big box systems. Um, and so... You know, people think drum and bass came around in the late in the mid nineties. Complete horseshit. Drum and bass was around in, in the sixties and seventies in Jamaica. 
So, you know, every, but you see, this is the thing with generations. Every generation that comes along thinks they're hip and that they're the new thing. Well, yeah, yeah. The news for these generations is you're not hip. You're not the new thing. You're joining a party that's been going on on planet Earth for millions of years. Yes, exactly. I mean, when, when it's very primeval and, you know, from Elvis shaking his hips to, you know, the Beatles crooning and stuff, all of these are things that have been happening for years. But the difference is that, like, TV and media caught onto it and spread the word. So people think, oh, it started in the 50s, but it started long before that. But from a human perspective, along what you're saying, from a human perspective, everything else caught up and gained momentum. But the human side would spiral stormways because when was the last time you heard two guitarists on stage? Yeah. Like Brian Robertson and uh, uh, Snowy White. Or not, no, not Gorham. Scott Gorham, yeah. Scott Gorham and, and Brian Robertson live on, on Live and Dangerous. When was the last time you heard two guitarists playing a live gig like that? I have friends who, who are huge Pearl Jam fans and they go, oh, Pearl Jam are amazing. This I went to see Pearl Jam live five times. They more or less played the same set every time and added two or three new songs in, but it was more or less the same old ding dong. And and I'm kind of listening to their guitar players, the lads are going, they're amazing guitar players. But it's it's not, you know, it's it's just gimmicks, it's hooks. Exactly. It goes back, Simon, to what we're saying. It's whatever general public like, whatever people like, they'll go for. When you're playing the guitar and you're learning and you're you're learning instruments and stuff, and you, did you kind of say, all right? This is my style of playing. Like when you were playing and you were playing acoustic and maybe you went on to electric and stuff, did you have a style? Were you trying to play like Lizzie? Were you trying to play like status quo? What was your style? I'll be brutally honest. I When I started playing the electric guitar, um, my mother brought me home a Gibson guitar as a present from Boston. Oh, nice. She got it for $300 in the sale at the time. And she brought it home to me as a present. So I had the Gibson guitar and I had an old amp. Then I got enough money to buy a PV amp and there was a, a very good reverb in the PV. And if you turned it up fully, it, it almost became a, de a de delay as well, if you get my drift. Okay, okay. So I used to play along to, to six or 12 o'clock TikTok, U2, and the Boy album, one of their best albums. <laughs> I'm joking. Over. No, it was. It was a great album, their first album. But I used to play along to U2 and I had a distortion pedal and I used to play along. I had a double album of Jimi Hendrix singles. Nice. So it was, I think it was 36 tracks of, of A-sides and B-sides of, of Jimi, Jimi Hendrix. You know, it was a treble album, sorry. But I remember I had the, the Hendrix album and the U2 album and I had Live and Dangerous. So I kind of play along to this and play along like it. But I always liked, I always found the similarity in some of the stuff that the Edge did in U2 and some of the more quieter stuff like The Wind Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix. And kind of, I was kind of going, well, I always believe that the really good musicians are kind of angels in a sense that have been maybe, I don't know, cast out or something for being smoking too many joints in heaven. I don't know. But yeah, 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 yeah. Sent down. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, you can hear it in some really good musicians. It's like um, uh, Spanish guitarists. You know, you can you can hear it. Some musicians sound very, very similar or they come from the same source wherever they're sourcing whether it's a spiritual thing or a human thing or a psychological thing, philosophical thing. But um, so I'm playing away in my bedroom and I had the Hendrix, playing along to the Hendrix. Uh, so then I joined the band, All Cats Grey, went to London. Then I came back. Um, and when I came back, I 
was back in Leo Moran's house one day because I was at school with Leo and Leo had a mandolin and uh, I liked the sound of it. So he said, here, have a go. Now, I had never picked up a mandolin in my life before and I had never, I didn't know the tuning was backwards, E-A-D-G. It's the opposite to a guitar. So it's the other way around. He showed me the D chord, which was just holding the two notes and I pressed the D and I kind of just felt around the neck and I just played the tune, MacAlpine's Fusiliers. Just came straight out of me. And I got it note perfect. And he goes, fucking hell, how would you do that? And I'm going, i got to buy one of these. So we went down to Tom Cousins, and I bought a mandolin of Tom Cousins from, from Chasky, who's based down near Tarn Bridge. Uh, so I bought the mandolin, and after I'd been playing the mandolin for a while, my we'd made some demos, 87, 88, in Kenny Rafe's studio on Bishop Street. So we had done a demo of At Least Pretend, and I played the mandolin on it. And I really liked it, and I'm kind of going... Well, I can play mandolin and I can play guitar. Now, unfortunately, my mother was knocked down in Dublin um, in 1988. So my dad's sister, Teresa uh, Keeley, who was, uh, she was Burke originally from Tume. Um, so my dad's sister, Teresa, was living in Dundrum and her husband, Eamon Keeley, was actually the organ player in the Dundrum church, I think for 40 or 50 years. They're both passed away now, God. Lord of mercy them. But um, Eamon played organ. Now, Teresa was good enough to put myself and my dad up when my mum was in hospital in St. James's. So every night we'd come back from the hospital after visiting my mum. We'd get back to the pub around maybe in Dundrum around half ten and Eamon would meet us there and we'd have a couple of pints and we'd head back to the house and we'd normally have a few sandwiches and go to bed. But this night anyway, I wasn't in a great place. I was a bit sad and I had got back to the house and I think I brought back a, a, a nag and a whiskey or something like that. So I was having a coffee and a whiskey and I went over and I was tinkering on the piano. He had a piano in the sitting room. Now I was playing very quietly because Teresa was asleep upstairs. But Eamon, anyway, God rest his soul, Eamon came over to me and he says, oh, John, he said, you wouldn't be too bad at the piano. So I said, how do you play it? So, But I had got lessons when I was a kid from a nun. So anyway, fast forward, I'm in Dundrum 1988. And it's like half twelve, one o'clock in the morning. And I just said to Eamon, if I really wanted to get my head around this and play songs and accompany myself, what do I do? He said, you play the bass notes with your left hand and you play the chords with your right. So I said, how do you play the chords? And he said, right, go to C. C. And he showed me how to play the D chord and the E chord and explained the tuning and how the notes were in tune. And you'd hear them in tune and you could differentiate between the minors and the major. So I learned the chords, and that's where I picked up piano from. So then, like, at that stage, obviously, you know, you had your transition from different instruments. And when you kind of, when you, you guys formed the Saw Doctors, you know, and, and Leo was on the show, and we were talking about those early days. But for you then, was it kind of, I'm going to be the mandolin guitar player in the band, or, you know, I'm going to play a few instruments? Were you kind of thinking I'll mess with a few of them? Well, it started off with me not with, with me actually playing guitar in the band. Yeah, um, it started with me doing demos. Like the, we did a demo of "Why Do I Always Want You," um, Saw Doctor's song, and Leo had the first line, dun, 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 dun. and I wrote the second part on acoustic guitars and Kenny's. So then we did uh, at least pretend, and I played the mandolin. Uh, but then we did uh, a song called "Dream Dream Girl." I don't know if you ever heard of it. And I did this raunchy, I did this mad guitar solo on it. And Davey goes, you tell him Johnny Raunchy. And I did this kind of Jason and the Scorchers type lead guitar on it. 
and uh, they loved it. But um, so that's kind of where I started. But we had been doing bits and pieces, and I was collaborating with them in the studio, and we had done some gigs in. Uh, I think we played in the Man of Aaron, and we played in the Hair Inn, and there was a quiet period then. And while the quiet period was happening, the, the girl singer Mary O'Connor went to London, I think, um, which left Lev Davy and Leo and Fergal McGrath. Red McGrath was the original drummer, who's now over. He's the manager of the Town Hall in Galway. I think he still is. Uh, so, and it was a great band. We were fiery. Um, but Fergal was based in Dublin. So there was, it was just back to Leo and Davy and I, and we were doing some demos. And then there was a lull period, and I started recording my solo album, which was to be my first solo album, which never was released. Um, so I started doing a solo album in Kenny's because I had written like 10 songs, but they were very diverse. There was like two country songs and kind of one dance song and three Rocky songs and two other odd piano type songs. Um, and somebody said to me once, for, you know, how can you diversify like this? You know, were you into Bowie or something like that? And I loved Bowie, but I was never influenced by that. Like I never really bought into the Ziggy Stardust stuff, because I loved Bowie being him, his real self. Like, Bowie on Heroes was like, forget about it. If I, if I wrote that song, I'd just retire. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I had been working on doing my solo album, and I'd done 67 hours recording in Kenny Race. And then, out of the blue, Leo contacted me and said that the Waterboys wanted to know would the Saw Doctors support them on an Irish tour. Because Mike Scott had seen us doing some gigs before that, we did uh, four gigs in the Keys Bar in Galway. Sean McDonough owned the Keys at the time. And Porrick Bratnock, who was the head of Mockness uh, and was an old colleague of Ollie Jennings, Porrick was uh, pretending to be our manager. So Porrick approached Sean McDonough and got us four residency gigs in the Keys, pure chancers in the Keys in Galway. Porrick Stevens on drums, Leo on bass, me on guitar, and Davy on, on guitar. So... We did these four gigs in the Keys, and then there was the lull period, and I went back to do my, my album. Then Mike Scott had come to see the gigs in the Keys. Yeah, because at that, I think at that time, I think as Leo said, were the Waterboys playing the Sea Points, no? Uh, no, I think they played Sea Point the year before that when I was still in London. Yeah, I was still in London. Oh, no, they played Sea Point in 87, yeah. Okay. Um, that was the C&D gig. Sean McBride was at that, Professor Sean McBride. We got asked to go on the Waterboys tour, and we did the Irish tour, the winter tour. Yes, and yes. that went so yeah. well. But it was brilliant. I love Mike Scott's approach to it, because we were doing really, really well with the audience, and they were beginning to love us, the, the Waterboys fans. And Mike Scott was loving this. And I asked him one time, I said, do you ever feel challenged by your support fans? You know, I was kind of delicate trying to ask him this question, you know. I didn't want to. I didn't want to appear to him to be saying we're going to blow you off the stage because that was never going to happen, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. Because I mean, down down through history, there have been support bands who go on to be much bigger than yeah, the other yeah, bands. Yeah. So I kind of I was asking this question. And he said no. He said the reason you're supporting me is he said is because the audience love you. And he said you warm the audience up for me. But he said not only are you warming the audience up for me, you're presenting me with a challenge. So. When I come on the stage, you've been on the stage, you're coming off it, right? And you have the audience heated up yeah. and you've just given your all. Now it's up oh, it's up to me to give my all. And that kind of, it was something he used to keep him on his toes. And how how fair can you get than that? Do you know what I mean? 
No, and I and I think he's a great personality like that. I'm a big Mike Scott fan because even you know when Leo told that story to me about, you know, he said saying that a bang on the ear was inspired by I used to love her. Yeah. You know, which which is great, and a lot of musicians mightn't admit that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but because of their ego and so on. But it was great that he saw that song and the meaning of it and the simplicity of it, but you know, still a deep message. And thought, wow, I, I like that theme. And then he delivered an amazing song too. Just it's synergy, isn't it? It is. And this is the thing. I mean, you have to. I love sometimes when I interview some people on the show, and it inspires me then because you're like, wow, I I love that energy they have, or I love what they're doing, and and I, I think it's great that other people inspire other people. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's just. Not everybody has a heart like Mike Scott. Not everybody will. Like, we were paid to do the tour. We, here's the funny thing. We were paid to do the tour by Mike Scott in Ireland and the UK. And, he, like, he helped us out in the UK because he gave us free catering. So when we got to the venues every day at lunchtime, when the PAs were being set up before the sound checks, we got free lunch. We got soup and sandwiches. There was fruit bowls and bowls with Mars bars and Kit Kats. Take whatever you want, lads. You know, we were really looked after and we were paid money for the gigs to cover our expenses for the camper van and stuff like that. After the success of Eyes to Lover, when the first Saw Doctors album did really was, or sorry, when the first Saw Doctors album was being released in Ireland by Solid Records, it did so well with in Ireland with Solid that we, we, got, we got signed to Warner Brothers on a, a worldwide licensing deal. Um, Warner Brothers wanted us to go and support Europe do a European support tour with Tom Petty at the time to plug the album. But the only drawback was they wanted 50 grand, you know. So that shows how good Mike Scott was. He played us. Uh, he did, yeah. But, you know, and, uh, you know, and it, wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't just us either. It was the music. He knew what we were about and he loved what we were doing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, he saw it, didn't he? He saw it. Yeah. And, you know, here's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because there's lots of great Irish bands who never make it outside Ireland. Um, and like, you know, when you look at Aslan and you look at other bands like that and, you know, they're legends in Ireland, the stunning and so on. But then outside the country, maybe they're only known among the expats or in the Irish community, you know. So the thing, obviously, and I think even with the Saw Doctors, you know, like, I could say to people here about the Saw Doctor and they wouldn't know who I was talking about. But the thing is, in the expat community and amongst the Irish and the, you know, the, the British as well, they're well known. But the one thing I suppose that the, Mike Scott was able to achieve with the Waterboys was he was able to make them this kind of, uh, even though they're Scottish-Irish kind of band, he was able to make them into this kind of worldwide cult band, wasn't he? But the Waterboys are ever-changing and they always will be. And I like, I like what he does because he opens the door, provides an awful lot of opportunity and puts bread and butter in some people's pockets, you know, and he's been doing that consistently for over 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was, I was, I think when we spoke the first time we spoke a year ago or whatever it was, I was telling you that that album, which you sang on a little room to Rome was that blew my mind when I heard it the first time. And it's amazing because I, when I was younger, I started doing martial arts and stuff and I wasn't playing music or even into music. But then when I was about 15 or 16, I got into the first, I think the first, someone gave me a tape and it was, this is the sea. 
Okay. And I was like, wow, this is like really different. I, I, and, but at the same time, I got into Guns N' Roses and I was loving hard rock. And, and that was where like the seeds of guitar playing were coming into me. I was like, I love that guitar playing. But so I, I'd be in my room listening to Axl Rose and Slash belting out, you know, you could be mine and, you know, appetite for destruction and so on. But then I'd turn on to Mike Scott singing Irish ballads and, you know, uh, how long will I love you and this kind of stuff. And I loved it and I couldn't get enough of it. And uh, I think it was that those two different types of seeds that were planted in my mind that made me appreciate the different realms of music, you know, the the traditional side of it. And for me, what I always loved about the Waterboys was they could be really rocky, but then at the same time, they could be very traditional, no? Yeah, and all music, I think, comes from the same source. And it's it's it's... It's like divining. It's it's how you use it, where you push it, and what you do with it. It's it's like you know you said something to me a good while back, um, Simon. You were saying how how do you measure success? People forget one important aspect of success uh, in the human story is that man is never measured on his success alone. What man is measured on at the end of the day are the means and methods that he used. When you, I think what Mike is, he sees the music. And he treats it in such a way; it comes through him, and he's the he's the um, conductor, the conduit. Yeah, I mean, I I'm the same way. For I spent two and a half years there before I went in recording this album. I spent two and a half, three years writing, and I wrote like ninety songs in two and a half years. And they're all they're not throwaway demos. Or These are all album songs. And and I'm a, my own worst critic because I'm I won't let Anton pass through if there's one percent of bullshit there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm my own worst critic in some ways. I learned an awful lot about how to appreciate what I have, my ability, and I think how to, f- how to find a way to utilize it in its best possible way. Yeah. So, so can I ask you then, you know, obviously you were in, you were like in the Saw Doctors for four, four, five years probably, or is that six years, we'll say. But when, when you were in it and, you know, you had all the success then, was it, was it something then you thought, I want to go and do this myself or the styles are different or something else I want to do? What was kind of the impetus for you to leave? I was really enjoying the Saw Doctors, really, really enjoying it. Um, things were going well, but from a personal perspective, there was like there was stuff that I, that I hadn't dealt with or even, even gone near um, from when I was young. And we had done, this is how... how how quick the change happened. We play on a Sunday morning at half 12, right? First band on in 1990, Tefela. Now, there was, if there was 50 people at the front of the barrier, we were lucky. I think there was maybe 25 or 30 people on a Sunday morning at the barrier, and we played for half an hour. The following year, we played from 8 o'clock to 10 to 9. We got paid a grand a minute for playing, and... We were the, the main act from 8 to 9 o'clock on the Saturday night. So we were the headliners in a sense. Now, that change was, that was phenomenal change when you think about it. Because for a number of years, we had been playing in toilets, not being disrespectful to the places we played in. But, you know, back in the day in the 80s and, and stuff like that, there was some, some gigs that you played and it was like, oh, wow. Um, so the change that happened was so fast. We had done Fela the second year. We got on stage and... I don't know if you were down there that year. No, I never went to fail. One, one of them I missed, but I, I always regret that, yeah. It was mad, Simon, because we were down there and we went on to, onto the stage and it was like, 
50,000 people just went mental. They knew the words of every single song. Uh, I sang Don't Let Me Down with the acoustic out the front. And uh, the crowd, 50,000 people sang every single word. And when we were leaving the stage, this is why I got into therapy eventually. When we were coming off the side of the stage, this voice in the back of my head, and I kid you not, hand on my heart, this voice in the back of my head said, do you think would they still like you if they knew what happened to you? It was like so. It was like the sound guy was talking to you, but it was all from your own head. I got really fucking. It was disconcerting, like seriously disconcerting. And it was like a clear voice. It was like somebody speaking into the headset into my right ear about the crowd. So I had walked to the side of the stage, Simon, and I'd heard this voice. Okay, um, and it was really disconcerting, and I was kind of going, you know, what's this about? So all the lads went down to Feathered that night with our fathers and Mike Scott, actually, and they stayed in a hotel. And I went out and stayed with some friends in the camping park. Now, this is after headline trailer. I went out and slept in the camping park. You know, people were going, he's fucking nuts. He has a hotel, a five-star hotel waiting for him, and he's going to the car park. But it's kind of where I was in my head. And I, there was a friend I wanted to be with because he was just, he was a good support. Sean was his name. And he, he was just, he was strong to be around because he was supportive. I felt really, really uncomfortable with what had happened because it completely sabotaged and destroyed probably one of the best moments of my life, which was headlining a festival, Fela, especially in Ireland. So what happened was I started to get really ill as in, I started developing scoliosis, start curvature of the spine. Now, one of the people I went to told me it could have been from traveling, from being on buses and on airplanes and stuff like that, because we've been yeah sleeping wrong and stuff like that and um so my health went down really really down at the same time i had realized before that i kind of i had been bisexual since i was 16 so um wasn't active or anything like that but i knew i was bisexual when i was 16 so when you knew but like was it like obviously that time in ireland it was something you were trying to hide oh it was still illegal it was yeah, it was it was an, it was illegal to be to be gay in Ireland at the time. Yeah, um, by law it was a criminal offence. You know, a criminal yeah. offence. So, yeah, and and obviously being in a band the size of the Saw Doctors that time with with press, it, it's you kind of have to hide things even more, don't you? Well, there's a huge there's a big element to what you just said there of truth, but the part of my reality was I wasn't thinking about that at all. What I was thinking about was. I've got long hair, okay, I've got okay. a black fucking cap, I'm playing a mandolin, and you're gay, fuck off. <laughs> you know, people wouldn't take you seriously. I had one friend who's still a really, really good friend, right? He's a good friend. And I, and he, if he watches this, he should know that. But I won't say his name. But um, oh, a couple of years ago, he met me one day, and he had a couple of drinks taken, and I said, come on, I'll drive you into Galway. So I was driving him into Galway, and he kept catching the handbrake and pulling the car. Right, so I'd have to pull in the side of the road, and I'm going, "What? What are you doing that for?" And he's going, "John, you're not gay. Rock and roll made you this way." And I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> "I love it, rock and roll." Well, you know, rock and roll is the devil's work, so people probably have all sorts of views about what it does to people. You know, don't be planting those seeds, Simon, and other people. Say. That's brilliant. <laughs> the devil. The... Yeah, no, but but it's true, isn't it? Because that's what you said there. For some people, even though they can respect, let's say, your sexuality, they can never accept it, and they're kind of fighting it. They're like, "No, there's no way. Not I've known him for years. There's no way he's gay, or there's no way he's whatever. There's no way." Just tell me the process for you, how you dealt with it in your own mind, and how you said, "I'm going to 
show who I am. I, I'm not hiding anymore or anything. How did you deal with that? I think the way I dealt with it was my father was a very intelligent man. So he brought me up with that kind of nobody has the right to fuck with my humanity or, or my, my rights or my being, you know. And that's like, that's the mindset. So when I was kind of thinking about it when I was gay, I was kind of going, why, why would I tell anybody? First and foremost, my husband, Mike, uh, we're three years married and we're 21 years together. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. What's sex of anybody's life? Three, three percent, one percent. Can you define it? You know, can you define it? So it's like, who are you? Um, when I'm talking to you, Simon, am I talking to you? Or am I talking to Simon, the sexual person? So you're discriminating against. No, you are not now, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. But when somebody comes comes to me with that, they're discriminating against me because I'm not talking to them as, as a sexual being. I'm talking to them as a human being. If you haven't, if it's like this is the way I deal with people. I'm talking in the second, third person, Simon. So like I'm looking at somebody going, if you have the intelligence, right, to use language, something which evolved, phonetics evolved thirty thousand years ago. But yet there are people who still can't say something because they're too busy getting uh, dopamine hits in their brain, neurons neurons firing because they're playing, uh, I don't know, what's the name of the games on the phones? Uh, Candy Crush or something, something like that. Candy Crush, that's the one, yeah. yeah. Do you have any? I have loads of Candy Crush, but not a fucking brain cell in the world. <laughs> no, it's like... They're, ki- they're not just killing the Candy Crush, they're killing their brain cells. Yeah. But this is the way the world... Yeah, I mean... Here's here. This is a new song from a new record, isn't it? From an yeah. X record, the head full of Candy Crush. <laughs> These the Candy no, Crush records, head, the Candy Crush brain cells. Yeah. yeah, no, but but you're right because the, the our sexual legacy and who we are sexually defines who we are in the eyes of other people. Because it's like if somebody was an exotic dancer, or somebody was a Playboy model, or somebody was a you know a, an adult film star, they might only do that for a year. But it defines the rest of their life in the eyes of the public, doesn't it? Which is wrong. And people say, well, did you actually get to know the person? Or are you talking about them being a porn star? Yeah. And it, it, it was a bit like leaving the Saw Doctors, too, because there were those that believed the Saw Doctors were just going to continue forever. And then I left. And when I left in 93, I've, I had three people making really nasty comments to me when I was out in bars. Oh, you fucking bollocks. You left the band and you ruined the band and you, you, you know, you ruined the band, this and that. Well, look, look, I'm going to, I, I don't know if you know the story, if you, you know the, the heavy metal band Pantera? Yeah, heard of them. The lead guitar player, Dimebag Darrell, who was a magnificent guitar player, was shot on stage like 15 years ago, I think it was, I can't remember. But he was shot on stage by an ex-soldier who was a huge Pantera fan. And he shot him because he blamed him for the breakup of the band. Imagine, he killed him and shot two other people. He came round the back of the stage while he was playing a guitar solo and shot him in the back of the head three times. And he killed him because he blamed him for the band breaking up. So it just shows you the level people will go to to get their frustration at bands breaking up out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just they don't have good acceptance, do they? <laughs> But but I mean, it's crazy. It's kind of like it happens as well in breakups of marriages and stuff where friends kind of like, well, why did you break up something that was a great thing? Because we had a great little unit going. And you're like, what? what? It's like you broke up our friendship unit, you know? Yeah, but they're not they're not the real fans of music, these people, are they? You know, they're just the people who, who, who kind of they're the toxic side of music. And it's like football. Do you remember Escobar? Yes, yes, yes. Scored the own goal. That's right. He was shot, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's like somebody goes, oh, you're ruining the party now. So, you know, get, you're, you have to be handled. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, there's so many things we can talk about, obviously. And, and you know, obviously, you know, we're, we've been talking a while now. But what I want to ask you is as well, you know, obviously going, going through all that stuff in your life then and, and you, you know, you, you became a therapist and put you on a different path. But was there... Was there many years where, like you said, you had your heart attack and everything? But after you left the Saw Doctors and you you brought out your your album, you know, um, then after that, when you you had you know with the success of that and everything, did you say, okay, I want to break from music for a while, or, or I'm going to do a new album soon? But then life gets in the way and life goes quickly. Tell us about that. Like after that album came out, I went to Hope House in 1996 in Oxford and Mayo and I sobered up and I went on the 12 step program. So, so what happened was, um, I called up, um, my old record company boss, Dennis Desmond, who owns solid records and Oliver Walsh was a key figure in, in the success of the saw doctors as well, Oliver and Dennis. But, um, I phoned up Dennis and I said, I've been to Hope house and I've sobered up and, uh, I'm going to start making some demos next year. So he just said to me, when you have some demos, he said, send them on to me. But he said, you know the score, don't you? And I said, I do. Now, what he meant by that, you know the score is, if you work with record companies and you're involved in the industry, the, the company industry, what happens is if you have a, uh, an addiction or a problem, you have to stay sober for two years before any other company will talk to you. I don't know if you knew that. Okay. See, because it's, it's like Phil Tennant, early in my journey, Simon, Phil Tennant, the Saw Doctors producer, he, um, I think he explained it to us very well that the music industry is an industry. It's not the music charity. And it's like, it's get that around my head. So I got that around my head and I stayed sober for two years, sent Dennis some demos and he loved what I was doing. And then he signed me for an album. I did, no, he signed me for three singles. I recorded the three singles. He didn't release them, but he loved, he said, do an album. So I did the album and it came out. Um, Illuminate came out during start of the Celtic Tiger. I could have brought out Illuminate with November Rain, Let It Be. <laughs> you know, I could have had 10 incredible fucking yeah, I songs understand. on Illuminate and the public wouldn't have given it continental shit because the Celtic <laughs> Tiger was... No, it's true. The Celtic Tiger, yeah, was, I understand. Tiger was happening. People's attention spans were down to four seconds. Um, and everybody, you know, there was like, there's a song on my new album called Liberty. And uh, uh, one of the lines in the song goes, round this neck of the woods, some folk are just back from Hollywood. And if you get my drift, round this neck of the woods, some folk are just back from Hollywood. Everybody's living in this place. And it's like, so Illuminate came out and I ended up, the record company said to me, it was brilliant because Dennis Desmond, we had success, such success with the Saw Doctors. There were times when, you know, we needed to get security and where things got fucking crazy with fans. But, so I'm sitting with Dennis in the office, in MCD's office in Dunleary, and he said to me, regarding launching your album, Illuminate, he said, uh, he said, Church, he said, we won't be doing a launch in HMB in O'Connell Street. You know that, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, because even if we did, he said, we'd be lucky if we got eight, eight people. And I, so I said, I was thinking more like five, Dennis. So, so we decided the best, he decided, the record company decided, actually Tommy Tiernan's wife, Yvonne Mac Mahan, was the, the record company manager at the time, the label head for Solid. So they put together a two-month uh, media campaign, which was me doing morning, early morning sessions in radio stations all over Ireland for two months. 
and staying in hotels in Cork and Belfast and Sligo and stuff. So we're doing all that and the media campaign. The album went great in the sense that it was critically acclaimed, but it was a commercial flop. It barely got its money back. Yeah, but it's a good, great album. Yeah. It's a great album. Like, even now, you know, I, I remember hearing it when it came out. But even now, listening back to it over the last week, I was listening to it and, you know, deep down in the city. And there's some great songs on it, you know, and, and great production as well. Yeah, it came out okay. I was happy with it as an artist. I mean, am I in it for the money? No. If I was, I would have been releasing Hardship years ago. It's funny. That time around, like, um, you also... I, as far as I remember, because we, you had TP Nyland playing on it with you, eh? Yeah. Yeah. But you all, TP and Overruled with Odie Lynch, weren't you involved with them as well? Well, here's here's another part of tonight's story. Because I remember, I'll tell you why I'm saying this now, because I remember being in tune at that time. And I remember um, Overruled were making waves around Tume. And I went to see a few of their gigs. And I remember they got the gig with House of Pain in Leisureland. I went to see that, actually. I got that. And I, I knew TP from school, obviously. He was a year ahead of me. Um, but they were, you know, a great band. And, and I, I, as far as I remember, you were involved with them. And uh, that's what I was just thinking there when TP was playing on that record with you as well. Yeah. I. It was nine, It was the Christmas of 93. Or no, it was... Sept- August, September of 93 after I'd left the band and I was in the Imperial Hotel with Marguerite Varden, my friend and Margaret Dignan and we had dinner upstairs and this band started playing across the road it was, there was some kind of a festival in the square on a lorry outside the town hall and they were making a racket but it was organised chaos and there was something to it so I went out to the front window upstairs and sat on the, the ledge looking across at the lorry I went over afterwards, and I'd, knew, I'd known Thomas from TP from um, the golf club, because I had, I had promoted a gig in the Hermitage for Sharon Shannon, and TP had arranged all the guys to collect the glasses and serve, serve drinks at the tables. So TP was my head man for that, looking after the guys. So I was talking to TP, and I said, you know, you guys have got something here. So I recorded that, that November. I brought the band into Kenny Raves. I recorded memories, and I sent it on to Dennis Desmond, and I said, Dennis, is there something in this or is it me? And he said, no, man, I like it. He said, uh, do some more. So we did some more tracks and he loved them. And he said, I'll give you so much more to keep recording. People really liked what they were doing. So we got um, Black Island, the first single out, and we did a TV, the Jerry Ryan TV show. And some people in Dublin had seen the band and they liked the sparseness and the freshness and the rawness of what they were being presented with. So they had mentioned that back to Dennis. And MCD, of course, Dennis was also stiff, solid records where Dennis owned MCD as well, McCann Desmond. So, so um, Dennis said to me, he said, um, let's do some gigs. I remember I was at one of those gigs, yeah. I was kind of going, right, we do two gigs in the Thatch and Tomb to warm up. So we did two gigs in the Thatch and Tomb and I recorded them. I have the actual videos of them. I took a 10-minute ten, ten clip of the best bits of the, of the gig, the half-hour tape, right? And I sent it to Dennis and I said, what do you think of this? He said, great, man. So he rang me up and he goes, I have some shows lined up. So I'm kind of going, we'll be getting some shows in, in Whelan's or something like that. So the first two shows were supporting Gun. Yeah, Gun. Okay, yeah. Gun, who had a huge hit with Word yeah, Up. Yeah, that's right. Scottish the cover of Word Up, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, and it got the best It got the best cover, European cover of the year or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got two gigs supporting Gun in Dublin and two gigs in Galway. 
And then Dennis rings me up to a month later and he goes, Stiff Little Fingers need a support act for Dublin and Belfast as well. That's right. So then we're supporting Stiff Little Fingers and in Belfast and Dublin. And then Dennis goes, how do you fancy playing the VIP tent at Fela? So I'm going, yeah, man, go for it. So we got the VIP tent at Fela. Went down and did that. Um, and then I put some money aside and I said, let's do Connolly's and Lep. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah, them. I know, Connolly's and Lep, yeah. Connolly's and Lep was a brilliant venue, so it was. It was like an old saloon. With, um, so we went down there to Paddy McNichol and we played Connolly's and Lep. My sister's band, my sister's band, Big Bag of Sticks, used to play down there. Oh, yeah, I remember them. That's my sister. Caroline was the singer, yeah. Oh, right. I didn't know that. All right, this is cool. Um, so then I ring Dennis up and I go, um, we did Conley's. He goes, how, how was it? And I said, it was a brilliant gig, but there was only 15 people down there because it was the time of the year we played down there. It's way out in West Cork, nearly two and a half, three hours west uh, past Cork, but uh, city. So, um, Dennis just rings me up one day and he goes, how do you fancy supporting the House of Pain? And I'm going, where, in Ireland? And he goes, yeah, Belfast, Cork, Limerick, Athlone, uh, Waterford, Leisureland, and Galway. And I'm going, yeah, 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 stick us down. So we started the House of Pain tour. What we didn't know was that DJ Lethal, one of the House of Pain, was wearing a neck bracelet or an ankle bracelet because he was still on, he was doing a two-year sentence for cocaine possession in L.A. County. So they let him out of the country, provided he wore this ankle bracelet. So we did the shows in, in Leisureland. We did the show in Gov in Leisureland. Blew the. Uh, you were there that night, didn't they? Didn't they blow the house away? Didn't they steal that gig? I was then Leisureland. I remember because I went to see. They did like it, they they overruled were better than House of Pain. <laughs> yeah, they stole that gig that night, man. Yeah, I because I'll tell you, I, I um. I remember that I saw I saw Overruled in the Thatch. I saw them in the Hermitage Hotel, and I remember that well. And then I saw I think I saw one or two other gigs. But then I remember going to Leisureland. It was a big deal and everything. But yeah, they they blew them off the stage. Yeah, and we did the same thing in the the big um, two and a half t- two three thousand two and a half thousand um, venue in the IT in Athlone. They blew them completely off the stage. And you know Tony Allen from 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 Foster and Allen. He was in the, the balcony halfway through the gig and he came over to me and he says, your boys are after stealing the show. <laughs> from Foster and Allen. I was going, this is fucking a metal band. A Tony Allen. Wow. Yeah, wow. it was surreal. But, um, so, we did the show in Limerick then and we knew something was up. The band fell apart. House of Pain. So the Irish tour imploded. Um, the band weren't happy, but what could I do? What could the promoters do? What could they do? So we came back and we licked our wounds. And Dennis said to me, he said, Terps, he said, sorry about what happened. He said, but it was completely out of our hands. And I said, I understand that. He said, how many tracks have you got? And I said, we have so many tracks. But I said, I have three album tracks. But I said, the singles that we've done aesthetically don't fit in with the album. So even though, even though our first two singles are being released, they won't be on the first album. I said, I know it sounds weird, but I said, they just don't work into it. They're a nice introduction for the band. So he gave me some some more funds and we went in and we finished the album and there's 10 amazing overrule tracks recorded on an analog, on analog tape, on one inch analog tape through a 16 track desk onto a one inch 16 track tape um, with four group channels and just 16 channels. And it's just, it's phenomenal, Simon. It's mind blown. 
and I'm mastering it at the moment. But I was mastering it. I'm finishing the mastering of it the first, this last two weeks of April when I've finished my own album. But we're releasing it this summer. It's the, the overall album people have never, ever heard. It's mind-blowing. And will, will we see an overall reunion? Um, well, they've talked. I was speaking to TP and to Odie this evening, actually. And they've talked about it. But it's just to get it out there streaming. It's just to get it up on a streaming platform and see if there's any feedback and people like it. Yeah, because now, now obviously, times are different and it's much harder for rock music to penetrate. Yeah. Isn't it? It's it, different. Even though we can appreciate it, it the, the younger generation, it's harder to get them to latch onto yeah. it. And it was a sad, it was, there was a sad story attached to the album because by the time we'd finished recording the album, it was June 1990, it was the end of June 1995, right? Dennis Desmond rang me up one day, it was about a week after we'd finished it, Dennis Desmond rang me up and he said, the album's gone, man. Okay. What happened was, and he was told by the label heads, the, the big conchos in Dublin, boy bands had taken over the markets completely. There was no point in releasing a rock album because nobody would listen to it. And that's if you think if you think back about the time that was when Take That and Boys On became really really prominent, and then for like eight, twelve, ten, twelve years the boy bands took over. Yeah, because you had all of the NSYNC and all of these bands. Yeah. So the album was shelved, but the good the good news about the album is is that the lads now own you know myself and the lads we now own one hundred percent of all rights. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, and it was. I mean. You know, the thing about it was, um, for that sound, they had a great sound that time. And, you know, it kind of had a mixture of everything. There was like mixtures of Metallica, ter Therapy. There was all sorts of kind of music in there. Mixtures of Guns N' Roses, everything. And um, it was very interesting at the time, you know. It, was, it, it, it caught people's attention. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's so many hard luck stories in the music industry. Well, I mean, that's the thing about music. It, it's fleeting and not just success, but music, even the styles and the things. And you don't realize, I mean, you bring out an album or a single and you say, oh, I'm going to follow up with another one. And then five years have passed. I mean, this is the problem that life, life. It's like with our band, Collective Whisper, our original band in, in 2010, we brought out an EP and then. You know, we had uh, we had our first baby, and you're kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, in a year, in a year or so, we'll come back to it. But then life changes, and and then you kind of a few years later, you go, okay, I'm going to jump on the horse again. So it, the great thing about music is you can do that, but sometimes things have moved on, or or you never got on the right train. So unfortunately, now, like for me, even if I release music, I'm working on new music now. Should be coming out in a few weeks. It's it's something you have to just do for yourself, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, but the good thing is now, I mean, there are certain marketing strategies that you don't, you don't have to PR, pay PR companies. You can take some steps yourself as to, get in the, to try to build your audience, you know. And it's like, but it's back, so, you know, uh, with my album that I'm recording at the moment, Simon, it's a double album, and it's, you know, Hand of My Heart, out, including Room to Roam. It's the best music I've ever written or been part of recording. That's how much I like it. But I didn't set out to do this. I started off making recording demos, which became an album, which then evolved into a double album. It's like yes, the yes. third week of this month, I'm having strings by, at the moment, I'm looking at a Polish or a, a Russian violinist 
and they're both have played as lead violinists with orchestras. So I'm looking at them to do strings on six tracks. I have an Italian top of the top sax player coming in to play on eight tracks, and I have um, a concert pianist playing on two tracks. It's like that's where I'm at with it, and it'll be the end of the month. But brilliant, that's really it's, good. But it's at a level where, yeah, it's at a level where I know I need to send it to some company, to some of my contacts. Like I know, like uh, Creation Records. I have a, I have, you know, an, an in, a backdoor in their phone number wise, and other, you know, contacts from the industry. Now it's it's not cronyism like that. Don't get me wrong. It's kind of you send somebody something, and it either has it or it doesn't. So. The one thing we all have to learn as musicians is to take rejection. In our early, yeah, in our earlier years, would you agree? When we're young, we need to be able to take rejection well. Yeah, and it's part and parcel of the of the whole game. Like criticism and healthy criticism are great, but like we have to be able to kind of someone says to you, "I don't like that," and and you know, I heard a very interesting point from um, this guy. He said, "Unfortunately, there's this thing that happens with musicians." He said that they listen to their own track so many times, like because of the working on it and production and they're listening to it in their car. They have this kind of, uh, it's a false sense of how good it is. Do you understand? Personal bias, it's called. Well, a good producer has to be incredibly impartial. You have to be able to call the line. Personal bias, yeah. So they're like going, no, I think it's really good and it's amazing now and Oh, but the, and then they can't understand how somebody else doesn't like it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm very, very consciously aware of whether what I do is is up to it or it's not. I'm, as I said, I'm my own worst critic like that. But the thing is that you know I could get somebody interested in what I'm doing, a company, or I might get somebody interested in what I'm doing, and I'm not interested in what they want to do. But there are so many alternative routes now. So the one thing for me, Simon, is with music is that. Um, I have a slight issue with music and sport because I think sport philosophy contaminated music along the line someplace, right? Because what we do is we are creators. When you create something, you're not competing against anybody else, right? So when somebody comes to you and says to you, oh, I didn't like that in it or I didn't like that in it, your intelligent brain, your intuition should be amazingly say, immediately saying to you, this person is a fucking idiot. Yeah, and, and you know what's really interesting is when you when you look back, if you look back now at something you did five years ago or ten years ago, and at the time you thought, oh, this is really good, but now you can hear the cracks and uh, whatever is in there, and you can hear, oh, I would have done that differently. So, you know, there is that personal bias in there, and you have to, uh, years later, you can see it, and you're thinking, wow, I thought that was much better than it was, you know. Opinions are like fish in the sea, right? And it's like Mike Scott asked me one time for an analogy of tube. And he, it wasn't me picking on tube, and we weren't picking on tube or anything like that. But it was the small town parochial scenario we were talking about. So he said, give me an analogy of tube. And I said, it's an expert factory, but nobody's qualified. You know, so, so music, isn't a comp- music isn't competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. enjoyment. It's life. It's living life. You know, going to school and, and you know, I'm from Currafin, obviously, but growing up in and around Tume and going to school there and seeing the culture and the like the saw doctors wave and everything. You know, it was quite interesting for me, actually, when Overrule did come out, how the, the success they had, because they weren't like the saw doctors, you know. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of bands and young bands and good bands around Tume. And for them... They're all, they'll always be living in the Saw Doctor's shadow because 
it's kind of like, oh, well, they're not the Saw Doctors. You know what I mean? And so I think you did very well that time with Overruled. The fact they were like a, a, a hardcore or they were, they were a punk rock band, metal band. You know what I mean? So it, 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 they, they did quite well considering they weren't like the Saw, the Saw Doctors at all. Yeah, well, all I did was kind of guide the ship and open the doors, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's true, yeah. So listen, before before I let you go, just quickly tell us then about your, you know, the EFT and your therapy work, like how you got into it and that whole thing. I discovered EFT tapping um, because my doctor, Ronan O'Connor, had done um, a, t- a liver test for me and he was a bit concerned about me. Uh, so he sent me in for an ultrasound of the liver and he just rang me up and he said, there's... Uh, you have early scarring and delivery of cirrhosis. So he said, um, you need to get some help. And he told me about Dr. Jarda Cahill's sister, Mary Cahill. So Mary was doing, she's a nurse here in June. So Mary was doing EFT. And when she was doing the EFT, she started working on me and she was doing Reiki on me as well. And now what I noticed with the EFT tapping was, is that all the disturbed emotional energy was being flushed out of my body. So I started to heal and I went on a spiritual program um, my own spiritual program, and you know that I've developed for, that I would has developed inside me from hanging around with certain people over the years, um, but it's all positive energy. Um, so what happened was, I um, went to Mary Cahill, did some tapping with her, did it for two days the first week, two days the second week, and then three days and three days the last two weeks. So after the month, my doctor sent me in for another ultrasound, Ronan, and uh, I got the results of the ultrasound back. And he ring me, rings me up on the phone, and I'd never heard him cursing before. And he goes, John, whatever you're fucking doing, he said, keep doing it. And I said, why? He said, the, the scarring has, it's gone, he said. It's disappeared. There's no scarring. He said, there's no sign of cirrhosis whatsoever. And I was going, to something in this EFT tapping. But then I discovered that the EFT tapping was being successfully used for, for the survivors of the Gulf War, U.S. veterans who had suffered PTSD. Yeah. And you see, I suffered PTSD because of the abuse when I was 14. So this was working really well. So I then went on and trained to become, I had the advanced certificate in psychotherapy and dynamic therapy, so uh, which was half qualified. So then I did the, I qualified to be an EFT practitioner. And then I heard of matrix, matrix re-imprinting, which is putting a person into a trance-like state and you can actually change their past completely. You can imprint a different story into somebody's mind. Now, you might think that this is, you know, this, this is fine line stuff. But if somebody comes to you who's 40 years of age, and when they were six years of age, they were brutally raped by their uncle, and they were living with that memory. Is it not right that you go in and remove that memory and put in a happier memory? Or do you let that person suffer? Are you a sadistic fucking sick person that's going to let them suffer? No, no, yeah, because I, I understand some people will be saying, well, that you're not putting in a true memory, but wouldn't you'd rather have a better picture than a worse picture, wouldn't you? Well, you don't even have to put in a memory. You can just blanket and leave clear water and flowers, you know? You can yeah, create yeah, a setting yeah. or a scene. It doesn't... Of course, and I mean, it's all about the person and the client or the patient or the victim, because if they have to live with that and you can take it away, yeah. why not? So I when I was discovering the, the effects of EFT and then the matrix re-imprinting, um, I was asked to, to go on and train as a master EFT practitioner by Helen Ryle down in Trilith. This woman's incredible. She has a master's in psychotherapy. She has a master's in science. 
She trains hypnotherapists. She's an EFT master and trainer. She's in her late 60s, early 70s, Helen. But she's one of the most powerful therapists I have met on this island, Helen Ride. Um, so I trained with Helen as a master practitioner, but I never feel, really felt like I had all the tools in the box. And I know that Helen uses hypnotherapy on working with people who have done life sentences and come out and want to live a normal life in society. Uh, people who would have been in difficult crimes because of their um, pre-existing history as children. Do you get what I'm saying? People that went through horrific shit and, and criminally offended as adults and then had to try and live. In. So she's an incredible woman. Um, so Helen taught me as a master and uh, um, trained me. And then I kind of went, you know, so it's all kind of heavy work I do as a therapist. Um, but I, I specifically prefer dealing with people who have had trauma issues, you know, as opposed to somebody who's afraid of spider, spiders. I'm not knocking or, or diminishing their, their issue. With it. Yeah. yeah, it's just I'm more comfortable dealing with people who've been where I've been or in worse places because I know I can. The first thing you could do immediately is remove the energy, the emotional energy that's, that has their head racing around the place. And kind of once you get a person to a calm place, it's, you know, you can always work from there. You can build a foundation from calmness. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, it's a great thing. And I have to say, commend you for, you know, taking the things in your life and then putting them into a new channel and making that channel into something that's really effective for other people and helping other people. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to take something that was negative in your life and then turn it around and say, okay, now I'm going to make it into something extremely positive and powerful, and now I'm going to help all these other people. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Simon. That's, that's, I've never heard anybody saying something like that to me. No, but it is. I mean, because I always think, you know, you, you, you take a weakness and make it into a strength. You know, that's something we all have to do or try to do. And I mean, when, when somebody tells me a story like that, the first thing I'm saying to them is, you know, well, well done. I mean, it can it can even be just someone writing a song that in turn helps millions of people or five people even, but from the lyrics in that song. So you have done that obviously with your music, but now you're doing it with therapy and you're helping people again. So it's another bow to your string. And I mean, long may it continue, you know, and I want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because I knew it would be a good deep chat and we'd talk about lots of different things, you know. And and the thing is, you're going to come on the show again, you know, next time when your album comes out. Oh, I'd, I'd love to come on and talk about my new record. It's coming yes, out later well, that's... Yeah. yeah, that's what we'll do. We, we'll, when your new record comes out, you know, we're, we're going to bring you on. I'll get a copy for you first. Yeah, do, of course. Of course, yeah. I'd love to listen to it and uh, we'll talk about it because I'd love to get deeper into the record about, you know, the process and, you know, because I'm a musician and I'm producing music, I'd love to hear how your process of doing it and the, how the songs came about so we can have a good show talking about that. The, be the beautiful thing about music is, Simon, is that, and I look forward to that, is that we all have something to learn from each other. Of At course. the minute we forget that, we're... And it's lovely. And you know what I miss? I, you know what I miss so much? I miss turning on the TV and seeing how music is created. There's no shows like that anymore. I remember the the classic albums, that TV show, and they'd show how Lou Reed's oh, yeah. album was made or the Black Album or whatever, ACDC. 
and they'd show them in and fit with the faders and everything. And you're kind of going, this is just amazing. Like, I love it because you're like, that's what I like to do. And I like to see the nuances and how they made that track happen and everything. But nowadays it's very hard to find that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but there, you can actually, there's, there's a lot of books. I don't know if you know, a lot of the, the bigger albums that were made, there were books that were made about the, the process of making the albums. But I think okay. they were limited. They were limited editions and they were only sold to, per, to kind of people within the circle because they cost a lot of money. I understand. But Mike Scott had one of Sergeant Peppers, the making of Sergeant Peppers, kind of that thick. It was like two inches thick. And it was all the notes from George Martin of how he mixed and everything, the production and the processors he used on Sergeant Peppers. And it was mind blown. It was like a goldfield of information. But but you you know what it is now though I, my big grievance with music today and I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man here or anything it's like nowadays I see young artists and they they say oh here's a live track we did and it's not live at all because they've played and then they've taken that track into the studio and they've edited the video and they've maybe done five takes and made it into one take. So it's a live performance that <laughs> five live performances turned into one edited, mixed and mastered. And the sound is incredible. You know what I mean? There's no mistakes. And you're kind of like, yeah, but that's not really live. But nowadays people don't know. Like I can I can see a performance on Facebook of somebody and they're saying, oh, here's a live a live version of the track or an acoustic version we did. And you're thinking, that's not acoustic. Acoustic is when, you know, let's say you hear like it's a rock track and then there's, you know, Slash sitting with Axl Rose doing Patience and you know the difference between the two of them, don't you? You know, and that's my kind of grievance now is that everything now is being kind of faked and you won't see many shows about the making of albums anymore because they want they don't want you to see too much. Well, that's interesting because we're both seeing the same thing because you said everything is faked and that goes in line with what I was saying about they're all using hacks. One time you'd see the warts and all the mistakes and you were like seeing how they'd make it better and they'd push the artist to do another take, do another take. But nowadays it's like what what's really interesting nowadays they have video diaries of albums being made. But like this is just showing you now. I saw a thing there recently where the guy was talking about the making of the album. But all he did was bring all the tracks up on Logic on the screen, and he pretended like he was actually recording it. But he had recorded it six months before, but forgot to video it. And he was just reconstructing like Crime Watch. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> because, because probably his manager said, oh, you need to have a making of video. And he goes, oh, I didn't do it at that time. Uh, well, do it now. Just re re pretend you're doing it. And people go, oh, look, he has, he's doing it. So nowadays you don't know what's real anymore. And yet you're kind of questioning stuff, aren't you? I, I won't say which country, but I'm, I'm trying to bring in as much influence into this record I'm doing. Um, but I was talking to one piano player. He gave me a price for the track and he charges per seconds, right? Yeah, for seconds. So you pay for the first 60 seconds and then you pay increments for every extra 30 seconds. Per seconds. Now, two wow. of the songs are five minutes long and the other two and the other three are four minutes long. So the whole budget's going to be gone at the piano player. Do you get me? Wow. So he's doing this and then he said to me, for an extra 25 euros per track, he said, I can add a performance video. And I kind of go, it's a fucking album I'm making, man. What do I want your performance video for? But yeah, but it's, yeah. You know, all this madness that's going on in the world, Simon, all this, you know, 
Jesus. I think where yeah. we are is... That's crazy, no? I think everybody's trying to find out where we are. And I think the dust needs to settle. Yeah, and but the big thing is there. Nowadays, I think people aren't making music just for making music. And then one day, luckily, they might make money from it. People now are making music to make money. And people are making, like, pod. It's like doing the podcast. People say to me, oh, and you know podcasting is great now i see people getting millions for it and i'm like that's not true you hear these stories about people making money podcasting you have to be doing it for years and people have to like it and you have to get the listeners you have to do it for the love of it you don't do it for the money you know what i mean you don't make music for the money yeah and it's yeah and it's it's like it's like what you said about you have to do it for years you're you've put your whole life to get to this moment in time in your career boys and so have i you know, and that's why we're here connecting and communicating and chatting. Um, but there's one thing that, like you're saying about how real it needs to be. When you think of all the gigs you had to do in your lifetime, say if somebody offered you a gig uh, in nine, six months, say your album comes out and it does well, and you and the MCD ring you up and say, say, listen, will you do the Olympia? When you go and you stand on the stage in the Olympia, Simon, the first thing that goes through your mind, when, like the road you've taken and I've taken, the real road, is that there's a lot of water under the bridge to get to this moment to be on the stage. So when you get there, you really appreciate fucking the stage you're on. But now there's no appreciation for the stage now. It's just walk on and just... Yeah. And yeah. It's like Billy Conley. He, you know, Billy Conley back in the day, we used to talk <laughs> about course, the windswept yeah. and interesting people. But it's like they're back, aren't they? Yeah, it is. I mean, nowadays it's a new type of cool and everything, and and it's uh, it's it's like one time at least, you know, there was a path full of sharks and people out to rip you off and everything. But you kind of, even though it was a path muddled with all of these experts and everything, you, there was a path. You know, you went that way, and if you were if you met the right people and you had the right music or whatever, right product, you went and it was a success. But nowadays it's like. For I feel sorry for younger artists because you're like, where do you go? How do you go? Everyone's talking about posting seven and eight times a day, but people are like, okay, I can do that, but what else do I have to do? And nobody's really talking about just get your craft, make your craft, get your stage craft. Enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, enjoy it. Write good songs, throw away the bad ones, use bits of the bad ones to make good ones, you know, learn production. It's not just about learning how to be a YouTuber and, you know, how to do TikTok and all that. Learn to be a musician and you will see that coming back. You know, you'll you'll see that there'll be real musicians coming back because people get sick of the whole fake production, you know. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head and I think that's where we're at right now. I think real music has to make a comeback because I think the other thing has gone beyond its threshold. I think like mankind needed this, you know, I'm not... I'm not Illuminati or any of that stuff, no. But so just in case anybody's wondering for the hand signals or anything like that, that's a rabbit. That's a rabbit. <laughs> well, now, now, that, now that you, listen, now that you've said it and they'll go, oh, Jesus, and he had an album called Illuminate. He must be Illuminati. Yeah, and now he has the age of uncertainty, yeah. He's preparing us for the uncertainty, yeah. Yeah, they'll be, you, you'll be down. If there's any conspiracy theorists, they'll be making links to that now, you know. Yeah. I'm going to, I, I was thinking about getting my, my, mother, my mother's these brilliant old dresses over in her house from the 70s and the 80s and the 60s, but more so the 60s and 70s and 50s. But she's these old kind of bright red dresses with the big white dots. 
I'm half thinking about putting one of them on and just doing a video out in the back garden for the, the album. Just to keep it real, you know? Of course. Of course. Of course. Yes. Well, look at, look at, we, we, we've walked, we've fell, we have crawled and we're getting back up again. So, I mean, you know, fair play to you. you. You've had a really interesting life so far and it'll even be more interesting in the next few years, I imagine. And, you know, best of luck with the work on the the album and with the album. And when it's ready and you're ready and the world is ready for it, um, we will have you back on again, you know. So thanks very much, John Turps Burke. Um, Brilliant. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Same right back at you, Simon. Thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful. John Turps Burke, everybody. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that interview. Thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure to hear all about your stories. You know, lots of bad things, but amazing and great things happen to you. And, you know, we want to thank you for sharing your story and want to thank you for your input into music over the last, you know, 30 years. And you've done some amazing work and written some amazing songs. And it's a pleasure to have you here to tell us about them. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. And we wish you the best of luck with your new album. We'll more than likely have you on the show when that album comes out to talk about it. And so until then, the best of luck with that. And we're excited for it. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining the show with me today. And my name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. I hope you take care of yourself and your family. Look after everything that's important to you. And once again, thanks for listening to us. And we'll talk to you down the road. Take care. Bye-bye.